You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. Today is an exciting day as I start a series of conversations with Sandy Swenson, who is an author and a woman I admire for being willing to share her story in her first book, The Joey Song, which speaks of her journey with her son's addiction. And also, my favorite meditation book for moms, Tending Dandelions. She's also recently written Just Dandy. I am thrilled to be able to introduce you to Sandy Swenson. So let's hear from her. You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Let's wet our whistle. Yes. Moisturize. Yes. As that gets us ready to talk. So I have absolutely been giddy. Sandy, about having you on with me. We did a webinar and I was trying to reflect how long ago that was. I think three years ago? At least three, possibly four. Yeah, we did a webinar for Hazel and Betty Ford where I got to speak with you and and to you in that webinar. And I had been recommending your book, Tending Dandelions, to so many moms, even before meeting you, because I think it is such a powerful piece of literature and knowledge and experience that helps so many. And I know we're going to talk about that, but welcome, Sandy. I'm glad to have you with me. And thank you. I'm so glad to join you. Really excited to hear your story. I've read your books, but I want our audience who may not have to know you're out there and what you've written in your wonderful word. So when I start this with almost every guest, I ask who your qualifier is. So how did you find yourself in the position you're in of a mom who wrote these books? My oldest son struggles with addiction. So it started... My first book was published in 2014, but I started writing the book in 2008. So that's, a, and we'd already been in this for a while. So, and it still goes on today. So you have how many children? I have two boys, my oldest son, Joey, and my younger one, Rick. And your older son, Joey, is the one who has the disease of addiction. And Tell us a little bit about what the journey was like for you with his disease. When did you start being aware of it being a problem? Well, um, when we started noticing we had a problem, we were living in India overseas for two years for his junior and senior year of high school. We had moved a lot. And so this was just another move and another international move. But now he was a junior in high school, and that was the first time in our life that we noticed um, that we had a problem with him. Um, But we thought it was just growing up teenage troubles. And it took us a lot of water under this big old roaring river bridge to come to the realization that it was an addiction problem. And that did not happen until 
We sent him off to his first year of college. We moved back to the United States to be sure to be close because, you know, we were having issues. And um, he was arrested before he even got there. And it was just a downward spiral. He tried to kill himself. You know, we went out back to college to get him. Before the first week of college, he was back home and moved in with us for a bit. And that's when we realized this was a drug or alcohol issue. And even at that, it took years to understand the scope of this thing, even with the arrests and overdoses and everything. We lived in so much denial and I was the queen of the queen of thinking I could fix this for my son. That was the whole deal for years was me going to fix this for him. Hmm. Didn't work. (laughs) No, that's one of the most difficult things of this journey to understand as family members, correct? It's I love them fiercely. I know them so well. And yet we're all blindsided by the disease. We're all manipulated by the disease. And coming to the understanding that what you're doing is not helping your son, but fueling the disease. When you have that revelation, when did it hit you that you recognized that's not my job anymore? Well, first of all, you know, we were trying to... um, the the disease was manipulating us and we were trying to out manipulate the disease. I mean, it was a thing. And for a long time, I felt like I was doing battle with my son um, because that's what, you know, it's what it felt like because I'm in his face and he's in my face and we're yelling and screaming at each other. And, you know, he's yelling horrible words and I'm, you know, stalking him and stuff. I felt like I was doing battle with my son. And at some point, I want to say maybe four or five years into this, it finally struck me that I'm not doing battle with my son. Maybe my son's face I am seeing, but the the addiction, the addict inside is the one I'm doing battle with. And that's when I was able to separate my behaviors I was trying to help my child, but in reality, I was helping the addict. And when I came to figure this out, then it was, okay, now I've got this. I don't want to please the addict. I want my son to someday look back at this and say, my mom was working for me and not being intimidated and manipulated by the addict because the addict and the child have different needs and desires. And my loyalty is going to be to my son. And sometimes my, the addict who resides in my son hates my guts. And it hurts, I can't lie, it hurts. But I don't care because I love my son more than the addict. So I'm gonna do the, the toughest love of all, which does not mean what people think tough love, which is to be mean and walk away. No, I think tough love means tough love because it is the toughest love of all to do the right thing for our child, even though it's breaking our hearts. Whatever that might be, whatever that looks like, and it should never be angry or mad or anything, you know, it's done with love, just love. And at the end of the day, I'm in this now 
15, 20 years, something like that now. And all I have at this point with my son is love, just love. And when I say it like that, just love, it's like, well, just, that's the only thing left. But really, that is huge. That is the most important thing that we have. And my son knows that he's loved and it's something to hang out there so that there's something healthy and whole for him to return to when and if he's ready. And that's not just a just, that's huge. That's huge, I think. Starting next week, Tuesday, April 13th, myself, Kirkland Hamill, the author of Filthy Beasts, and Gordon Johnson will be hosting a three-part series for a small group of people who choose to register to participate in this book club session where we will look at parts of the story and dive into our own stories in a way to build our community of support with other family members who love someone with the disease of addiction. If you're interested, please register at Gordon at circle.bm. Please register soon as spaces are limited because we want it to be a more intimate sharing experience. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. You're prioritizing your well-being gives your son the best of who you could possibly be for him when he does surface and want to do something different. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not a yelly person. I really just, it's just not my nature. But early on in this, ooh, I was yelling, screaming. I mean, I was just, I, I just became a different person. And then of course, that gave him something to fight against and yell back at more and swear at me and, you know, call me horrible things. And it was just this thing until I stopped engaging in that. And then as I stepped back, he was no longer pushing against me because I was the one he was pushing against instead of, there was no way he was ever going to fight his disease with me in the middle. I'm the one that he put all of his, efforts and angers and energies that was me um and so as I stepped back then he had to fight other things but not me it wasn't mine to be in the middle of anyway but also then we had a chance now for the last several years and it's been rocky I gotta tell you it's not all been you know flowers and roses but um we had a chance to heal from all those ugly words. I hardly even remember them now. Well, not really, because I really do remember them, but, but they're way back there. Um, there's something healthy for him to return to. That is huge because we were killing our relationship that used to be so good. We were killing it with just vileness. And now... That is behind us. We haven't had vile words for I don't even know how many years. Years and years and years. We haven't had vile words. We have a lot of I love yous. And um, there's something healthy here. Me, 
me, but also then our family, because if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, you know, that whole thing, like just all gets a mess. Um, by keeping myself where I belong and working on me, which is the thing I can work on, there's something healthy. Imagine if he came back and I was still that bitter, angry, blamey, whatever I was. Why would he want to come back to that? You know? You said it hasn't been easy. No. Has he found recovery at all in this journey? No. And so one could assume that would mean a lot of ups and downs of doing really okay somewhat and then doing really badly, possible overdoses, consequences along the journey? Um, yes, but actually um, we live quite far away from each other. He lives in Florida and I live in Minnesota. Um, so I'm very removed from that. That didn't stop me before because I would stalk his email and his Facebook. I had old passwords. I mean, I had my ways. Mothers can be very detective, you know, professionals. So um, I don't ask about that stuff anymore. So when I am speaking about, you know, in the last 10 years, it's my recovery because I don't focus on where he is. Other than that, we talk, we share a lot of I love you's and I don't ask or if I get snippets of things that don't make sense or they terrify me because he drops a little something, I basically ignore it because I can't do anything about it. I don't know if it's true because many things that are said aren't. Um, I can't worry about this thing I can do nothing about, which then saps me of all of my energies. My one place I can put my energy into is loving him. And that's where I'm putting my love. And that is not just our phone calls and texts, but it's also the work I do, the books I write, the, the connecting with the moms, because I'm a big believer in um, scattering thing, the love sideways. I may not be able to hands-on fix him because I can't, because of course we can't do that with any grown adult, period, ever. But what I can do is spread goodness and understanding that the uh, addiction is a disease, not a disgrace, and try to change the way people perceive addiction, including my son, so he doesn't have to feel shame. And then in time and people and spreading, and eventually it reaches him from some other angle and some other person, and they're going to be able to help him in a way I can't. To me, that is where to put the energies. I feel like that's way more constructive than in his face yelling at him. <laughs> or not taking care of yourself at all and jumping on a plane every five minutes or keeping your focus on him, doing all this mental gymnastics of trying to figure out where he's at versus actually focusing on where am I at right now? How am I doing? Oh, absolutely. And, and the, and the kicker of that, of course, is when you get to the place of understanding this is that the first scenario doesn't do any good for anybody. 
not him, not me, not a fan, nothing, nothing. It's basically banging your head on the wall, trying to feel better, but really not. The second scenario actually has the potential to do a lot, a lot of good in so many ways. Absolutely. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. When you do hear the nuggets that get dropped that are difficult and you don't know if they're true and to your point you don't ask you don't react what do you do with the energy that comes up in you at that time you get off the phone what do you do to take care of yourself because that's a real everyday scenario for anybody who loves someone with the disease well um it depends sometimes as long as this has been going on and as you know exactly I know what I should do and how to react, I don't always do, you know, it's not a perfectly, you know, you get it down once and you got it forever. It's just not that way. So sometimes after we hang up, I have a good cry. Um, I call a friend and say, oh, my gosh, you know, he said this. I don't want to believe this because it's so horrible. And it might not be true at all because that's happened before too, where there's some horrible thing and it was not even remotely true. So I don't want to get too invested in something that might not be true. But on the other hand, if it is true, oh my gosh, you know, it's not perfect, you know, but, um, but I do consciously know what to do, you know, to talk to friends, to cry, to feel the feels, gotta feel the feels, you know, and then, and then, and focus my energies into my mom's stuff, into the books and helping the moms and spreading what I can in a good way and hoping it'll land on his head one day in a very good, you know, loving person helping him in some other way. So redirecting. Thanks for being with me today. And I hope you've enjoyed getting to know Sandy Swenson. She'll be back again next week to go further into parts of her story and share from her books. In the meantime, find out more about Sandy on her website, sandyswenson.com. A place where love and addiction meet. I want to thank my guest for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, EmbraceFamilyRecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.